Open in your Bibles to Mark chapter 6. We continue in our study of the book of Mark. We started verses 1 to 13 last week. We got through about verse 1. Uh, we will finish chapter 6 verses 1 to 13 this morning of the book of Mark. So if you would turn to that passage in your Bible and we will study the Word of God together. I'm going to be reading the passage from the New International Translation of the Scriptures. Jesus left there and went to his hometown, accompanied by his disciples. When the Sabbath came, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were amazed. Where did this man get these things, they asked? What's this wisdom that has been given him, that he even does miracles? Isn't this the carpenter? Isn't this Mary's son? And the brothers, the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon, aren't his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. Jesus said to them, only in his hometown, among his relatives, and in his own house is a prophet without honor. He could not do any miracles there except lay his hands on a few sick people and heal them. And he was amazed at their lack of faith. Then Jesus went around, teaching from village to village, calling the twelve to him. He sent them out two by two and gave them authority over evil spirits. These were his instructions. Take nothing for the journey except the staff. No bread, no bag, no money in your belts. Wear sandals, but not an extra tunic. Whenever you enter a house, stay there until you leave that town. And if any place will not welcome you or listen to you, shake the dust off your feet when you leave as a testimony against them. They went out and preached that people should repent. They drove out many demons and anointed many sick people with oil and healed them. Would you bow with me in prayer? Our Father, we bow before you this morning and we are once again grateful to you for your word for its clarity, for the way it speaks to our lives, for the way it speaks to the human condition, for the way it speaks for our need of a Savior and the provision of a Savior that you provided by sending Jesus, your Son, from the glories of heaven to wind up on the hill of Calvary and in the grave, but ascend but be resurrected from the grave and ascend into heaven. Thank you that Jesus willingly came. Thank you that he endured such humiliation for us. Thank you that by putting our trust in him, we can have eternal life. We can pass from death to life. We can be a part of your family. Lord, always we pray that if there are any in our services who have yet to trust Jesus as Savior, that you will draw them by your Spirit to the foot of the cross, where we pray they will put their faith in Jesus and his finished work. God, guide us in the study, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as you know from last week, as we start, started chapter 6 of the book of Mark, Jesus is making a visit to his hometown of Nazareth. And uh, many believe that this is actually the last time. It's not the first time he and his disciples visited Nazareth, but many believe that it is the last time. 
And you can, when you read chapter 6, and you see the events of chapter 6, and you see the way they did not accept Jesus, their own uh, uh, hometown person that they knew up close and personal, how they rejected him and did not put faith into him, uh, it didn't go well, and many uh, believe that Jesus never returned to Nazareth. One writer put it this way, Unfortunately, this homecoming does not go well, Jesus returns to his hometown of Nazareth, but the people there are faithless and skeptical. They recognize the truth of Jesus' preaching, but they reject him, especially after he claims to be the long-awaited Messiah. They, they knew the truth of what he was saying, but they chose not to believe. They chose not to believe. They chose to reject Jesus Christ as Messiah as their Savior. Now, you'll remember from last week that this was not a personal visit, but rather it was a public visit. It was the visit of a rabbi with his disciples. That's what we read here in verse 1. Jesus left there. The there is Capernaum. And he went to his hometown, which is Nazareth, accompanied by his disciples. So he is going back not to, not to visit the folks, so to speak, in quotes. Uh, he's not going back for uh, just uh, uh, to visit his hometown. He is going back as a rabbi to teach, and not only to teach the people of Nazareth, but also to teach his disciples. Now, it starts out pretty well. Uh, we see that in verse chapter 6 and verse 2, Many who heard him were amazed. So it starts out with the people hearing Jesus. Jesus back as a rabbi with his disciples. And uh, they are uh, um, amazed at Jesus. But two verses later we read that they took offense at him. What a change came about. Uh, at first they were amazed at Jesus. Amazed at his teaching. But when they began to think about it, and when they began to think about who they were listening to, they decided that something had to be wrong there, and they were offended by Jesus. They took offense at, at uh, what he was teaching. You can imagine how it began. Jesus comes back to his hometown. He comes back as a rabbi. He teaches in the synagogue. And you can imagine the people begin by saying, wow, that's Jesus. We, we remember him when he was just a little guy, you know. Uh, he used to live three doors down from us, that kind of thing. And they, they, uh, they are amazed. They are amazed. But you can see their wheels begin to turn, and they think, yeah, this is Jesus. Yeah, he used to live three doors down. Yeah, we know his mother. Yeah, we know his brothers and sisters. We know that he was a carpenter, and carpenters... And people who worked with their hands were not looked upon uh, greatly in that day. And we'll have more to say about that in just a few moments. So you can almost see, as these uh, residents of Nazareth, 
people of Jesus' hometown, you can almost see them turning from their amazement at Jesus, amazement at who he is, amazement at what he does, amazement uh, already, I'm sure by now, they've gotten many reports about Jesus. They know what he's all about. They know what he's been teaching. They know about the miracles he's been doing. They know about the casting out demons. They know about uh, healing the sick. They know about these things. They know about raising the dead. They know about those things. And so they think, yeah, this is Jesus. And so their whole attitude toward him changes to one of an offense. They begin amazed and they wind up being offended by him. Now, this, as we said, was not a personal visit. It was a public visit. Jesus is preparing his disciples for ministry. He's preparing his disciples for ministry, and we spent a lot of time last week talking about that. And uh, you know from, from uh, Mark chapter 3 that there are two phrases that Jesus, uh, that was used about Jesus that laid out for us his teaching ministry, his training ministry, the way he chose to train his disciples. Uh, if you look back at chapter 3, just go a few pages back to chapter 3. And verse 13, Jesus went up on a mountainside and called to him those he wanted, and, the, and they came to him. He appointed twelve, designating them apostles, that they might be, and our first phrase is with him, and that he might send them. That's our second phrase. So those two phrases, be with him and send them out, uh, are Jesus, an example of Jesus' training method for his disciples. Uh, his training method would begin with communion and companionship, uh, being with them. They could listen to him. They could interact with him. They could ask questions of him. There was communion, companionship, training, and then it didn't end there. You see, we never are studying the Bible just to gain more knowledge. The idea is not just to gain more knowledge. We study the Bible so that we can better understand God's will. We study the Bible so we can better understand God's ways in this world. We study the Bible so we can better conform our lives to biblical truth. That's why we study the Bible. And so we don't stop at knowledge. Studying the Bible isn't just an exercise in gaining more knowledge. Studying the Bible isn't just an exercise in gaining more things to help us when we have a trivia contest. Studying the Bible is to gain more knowledge so that we can become obedient to God. We can follow him. We can understand his will. So they would have communion, companionship, and training, and then they, Jesus would commission them. And we're going to see the commissioning here in chapter 6, verses 7 to 13. We're going to see the commissioning here in our passage in chapter 7 to 13. So, uh, not chapter, verses 7 to 13. We have Mark 6, verses 1 to 6, which is the ministry of Jesus to his disciples. The ministry of Jesus to his disciples. We have in this section also the rejection of Jesus. And then in verses 7 to 13, we have Jesus who sends out the disciples, who commissions the twelve to go out and minister. He has trained them, now he commissions them. By the way, just for your own study, and, and one day you may be leading a group, 
and you may want to teach about discipleship. You may want to teach about training and Jesus training method. Uh, if you want to see more, we can see in Paul's life how he also followed Jesus' training method. Let me give you two passages of Scripture, and you can, you can put these down. Uh, the first is Philippians chapter 4 and verse 9. Philippians chapter 4 and verse 9, where we see that Paul was following the method that Jesus used in training his disciples, where Paul writes in Philippians 4, 9, whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice and the God of peace will be with you. Paul said, you, you've had a chance to, to listen to me. You've had a chance to hear my teaching. More importantly, you've had a chance to see my life, to hear my words, to know whether I'm living out the words that I'm teaching you. You have a chance to be with me. You have a chance to, uh, to hear me. You have a chance then to put it into practice. There's the commissioning. There's the application. We ought all, always to do that. So Paul, in a very real way, follows Jesus' teaching methodology, methodology, training methodology that we see in Mark chapter 3 and Mark chapter 6. One other passage of Scripture for your own private study, and that's 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 2, which is another place that Paul expresses his training method. He says in chapter 2 and verse 2 of uh, 2 Timothy, and the things you have heard me say in the presence of many witnesses entrust to reliable men who will also be qualified to teach others. So again, we start with what Paul has taught them, what, Paul ha what they have heard from him, what they have seen in his life, the way they have applied it in, the way he applies it in his life, the way they applied it in their lives, he says, in the presence of many witnesses, entrust those things to reliable people who will be able to, who also be qualified to teach others. That was Jesus' teaching method. It's an important one uh, to be with him, to be sent out by him. And that, <clears throat> Paul follows that training method, and we see that uh, in, the, in the pages of Scripture. Well, again... The people were amazed, and the word amazed in, in uh, verse uh, 2, uh, there were many who heard him and were amazed. The word amazed has the idea of astounded. They were overwhelmed. At first, they were astounded by Jesus, and they were overwhelmed by Jesus, and, uh, but they began to ask some questions. Some questions began to come into their thinking. Uh, some things that they ask is uh, things like, where did this man get these things? Where did this man get these things? What's this wisdom that has been given him that he even does miracles? They began to ask disparaging questions. They began to think about, this is, this is Jesus. We know him. He's a carpenter. He's not a rabbi. He hasn't been rabbinically trained. Uh, he's, he's just a carpenter. And they didn't look very kindly upon manual labor. In fact, they disliked manual labor. 
and they looked down upon people who did manual labor. And so they began to ask questions. When first they're astounded, when first they're overwhelmed, when first they're amazed, they begin to ask some disparaging questions like, where did this man get these things? And the, these things is a reference to his teaching. It's a reference to his teaching. Where, where did he learn it? He didn't go to rabbi school. He didn't, wasn't trained rabbinically. Thank God for that. Where did he get it? And so doubts begin to come. Doubts begin to come. It was a step on the road from amazed to offended. Doubts became, began to come. The second question is, what is this wisdom that has been given him? In other words, as one writer called it, horse sense. I don't know if we still have horse sense in the 21st century or not. I know that we don't have a lot of common sense in the 21st century. We are really have a dearth of common sense. But that's not what they're, they're not talking about horse sense. They're not talking about common sense. When they're asking the question, what's this wisdom that's been given him? The wisdom they're talking about is the, the knowledge of God and his purposes applied to living. The knowledge of God and his purposes applied to living. That's what biblical wisdom is. Biblical wisdom is an active thing. Biblical wisdom isn't a, a cerebral thing. Biblical wisdom, wisdom isn't just gaining more knowledge. Biblical wisdom is the ability that God gives us to take his word and apply it to the situations of our lives. That's biblical wisdom. And so, that they, so they were asking, where did he get this wisdom? Where did he get this biblical wisdom? Not that he had lots of horse sense or common sense, but where did he get this wisdom from God? Where? We know him. He grew up among us. When his dad died, his stepdad died. He took over the carpenter's shop. We know who he is. Where did he get this teaching? Where did he get this wisdom? And you can see the wheels start to turn. They're amazed. But where did he get this teaching? They're amazed. But where did he get this wisdom? They're on their way to offended. They're on their way to offended. The third thing is they wanted to know about his miracles. Well, how, how did he, who gave him the power to do miracles? How did he have the power? How does he have the authority to do miracles, the power to do miracles? How can that be? And earlier in the book, in chapter 3 and verse 22 of the book of Mark, the scribes had decided it had to be God or Satan, and so since they didn't want to support Jesus, they figured it had to be Satan. Maybe that's the choice the residents of Nazareth were making. They begin to ask these disparaging questions. Where did he get his teaching? Where did he get his wisdom? Where did he get the power, and more importantly, where did he get the authority to do miracles? Then they began to think about, well, he's just an ordinary person. 
He's just an ordinary person. There's nothing special about him. We grew up with him. We know who he is. There's nothing special. He's just an ordinary person. Isn't this the carpenter? And, and trust me, when they were saying that, it wasn't like, isn't this the carpenter? You know, today we think about, or maybe, maybe you don't, I, I think about I, my, my first real job, actually my second real job, I, I actually had a real job before I was in the ministry, so I know a little bit about the world, uh, was for a cabinet shop. We, we manufactured kitchen cabinets, and uh, it was in the Pennsylvania Dutch country, and I want to tell you, you want to see some craftsmen in wood? Pennsylvania Dutch country is where to see it. And uh, we, had some, we had some true woodworking craftsmen in our shop. Uh, they made amazing things. They did amazing. They, they could do it. They wouldn't let me near the machinery because I was dangerous to them and myself. But uh, the, uh, uh, they, they had such great craftsmanship. And we respect that today. We respect that today. In that day, they didn't. They just, just the opposite. If you were a manual laborer, mm, that's what their thinking was. That's what their thinking is. So that's why they're that's why they're asked, isn't he the carpenter? Isn't this Mary's son? His brothers and sisters are here. You can see how they got from amazed to offended. He was ordinary, is what they were trying to say. He was ordinary, just a common laborer. People still stumble over how common Jesus is. Uh, Josh McDowell wrote a book many years ago entitled More Than a Carpenter, and I think more than a few people came to know the carpenter as their savior through his book. More Than a Carpenter. One writer said, The people of Nazareth despised Jesus because he was a working man. To us, that is his glory because it means that God, when he came to earth, claimed no exemptions. He took upon himself the common life with all its common tasks. And we love that. We love that. Another writer said, we must ever beware, and I think this is a great warning to us, we must ever beware of the temptation to evaluate men by externals and incidentals and not by native worth. What a great statement. We must ever beware of the temptation to evaluate men by externals. What does that mean? It means that you and I have a tendency to look upon other people and we ask questions like, well, what do they do for a living? We ask questions like, what's their status in the community? How much money do they have? And we evaluate by externals and incidentals instead of by native worth. You know that every person you meet is a man or a woman or a boy or a girl who is made in the image of God. It is a fallen image since Genesis 3 but it is still the image of God.
We ought not judge people by externals. We ought not to judge people by incidentals. The same writer said, familiarity should breed a growing respect. Sometimes we are too near to people to see their greatness. <coughs> Excuse me. Sometimes we are too near to people to see their greatness. What a great statement. <clears throat> Instead of familiarity breeding contempt, it ought to breed in us respect for the people around us. Some of the greatest people that you'll ever know are in this room. Some of the people who are doing the greatest things are in this room, maybe sitting next to you, maybe sitting down the aisle from you. We ought never to judge people by externals, what they do, their status, their wealth. We ought never to judge people by incidentals. <clears throat> Familiarity, as the writer said, should breed a growing respect. Now, I, I tell you, when I was studying this, I was thinking to myself, these people of Nazareth were offended by Jesus because he was common, because he was a common laborer. They didn't know the half of it. They didn't know the half of it because Jesus was the one who came from heaven's glories. You talk about humility. You talk about humiliation. The greatest humiliation ever in our world is that the God who created everything we see left heaven's glories so he could come to earth as a human being. And why did he do that? So he could die on Calvary's tree in your place and my place. Those Naz Nazarenes didn't know the half of it. They did not know the half of it. One writer said, it shows us plainly that for the first 30 years of his life, our Lord was not ashamed to work with his own hands. There is something marvelous and overwhelming in the thought. He who made heaven and earth and sea and all therein, he without whom nothing was made <clears throat> that was made, the Son of God himself took on him the form of a servant and in the sweat of his face ate bread as a working man. This is indeed that love of Christ that passes knowledge. Though he was rich, yet for our sakes he became poor, both in life and death. He humbled himself that through him sinners might live and reign forevermore. They thought Jesus was common. They don't know. They didn't know how far he had come from heaven to this earth that he might die for them, that he might bear their sins on Calvary's tree. There's some great passages of Scripture. Let me just give them to you quickly that we ought to meditate on often in Hebrews chapter 1, starting at verse 1. In the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times 
and in many ways, but in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom he made the universe. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. In chapter 2, we read in verse 9, we see Jesus who was made a little lower than the angels, now crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. In chapter 2 and verse 14, since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity so that by his death he might destroy him who holds the power of death. And then in Philippians chapter 2, and we're, we're really going through these quickly, but I hope you'll take some time to look at these passages. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name. Jesus endured. The Nazarenes had no idea about how far he had come. They had no idea about how far they, had off, they were off when they looked at him and said, he's just a common laborer. Because he works with his hands, because he works in a carpenter's shop. No, he came from heaven, folks. He came from heaven. Jesus endured the humiliation of becoming man so that he might provide redemption for us. The people of Nazareth didn't know the half of it. The second thing that they, they questioned is, uh, and said about him is, back in Matthew now, not Matthew, Mark, excuse me, back in Mark, isn't this Mary's son and the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon, aren't his sisters here with us? What doesn't stand out to us in this day, but to call Jesus Mary's son was a derogatory term was a derogatory term. You see, a person would never be referred to as his mother's son, even if she was a widow. In that day, a person would never be referred to as his mother's son, even if she was a widow. He would still be called son of Joseph. To call him son of Mary was an insult and it was a reference to the whispers about the birth of Jesus and the way it came about Mary being pregnant without marriage. It was an insult. It was an insult to call him Mary's son. Now it mentions his half-brothers and sisters here, and there is some 
discussion about whether they are children or nieces and nephews. Uh, for the purposes of Roman Catholic doctrine, they have to translate this wrongly, nieces and nephews instead of brothers and sisters. Why is that? The reason for that is there is a doctrine in Catholicism having to do with Mary called the perpetual virginity of Mary. That is that Mary remained a virgin even after the birth of Jesus and never had any other children other than uh, Jesus himself. And to perpetuate that doctrine, they have to take passages like Mark chapter 6 and make these nieces and nephews of Jesus instead of making them, uh, or cousins of Jesus, instead of seeing uh, what the plain text says, and that is that they are brothers and sisters of Jesus. Now, how do we know that? How do we know that Mary and Joseph had other children after Jesus? Well, if you turn to Matthew chapter 1, or just write this down for your study, Matthew chapter 1 and verse 25. This is after Joseph was uh, uh, in uh, sleep and in a trance, and the angel came and visited him, told him to marry Mary. He had been thinking about putting her away privately. When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took Mary home as his wife. But, and you know, and I love this because Scripture is so detailed, down to the every very word. But he had no union with her, underlying the little word that follows that, until she gave birth to a son and he gave him the name Jesus. There it plainly states, that they consummated their marriage after Jesus was born. They consummated their marriage after Jesus was born. So Mary was no perpetual virgin. Jesus had half-brothers and half-sisters. James was the leader of the church of Jerusalem and wrote the book of James. Judas wrote the book of Jude. And those were his brothers half-brothers and half-sisters. Well, they questioned these things about him and they took offense. As one writer said, they were ensnared by their own unbelief and they stumbled. They found no reason to believe he was God's anointed one. Well, verses 5 and 6 or verse 4, Jesus said to them, Only in his hometown among his relatives and his own house is a prophet without honor. Uh, that was a, began, we believe, originated as a Greek proverb, and then later it was applied in Greek society as well as Hebrew society, that a prophet uh, only among his relatives and in his own house is a prophet without honor. He could not do any miracles there except lay his hands on a few sick people and heal them. And he was amazed at their lack of faith. He was amazed at their lack of faith. They were ensnared, as we said, by their own unbelief. There were no limitations to his power. There were no limitations to his power, but the people there did not believe. There were no believers, people there did not go to him 
for healing because they did not believe that he was who he said he was. Well, verses 1 to 6 is the ministry of Jesus, the rejection of Jesus, the training of the disciples. Uh, Verses 7 to 13, we see the ministry of the 12, the ministry of the 12. Now, before we get into that, there's something very interesting that we should see. Uh, This is the second time that we have a statement of the rejection of Jesus Christ in the book of Mark. The first time was chapter 3 and verse 6, when the religious leaders uh, made the decision that Jesus must must be put to death. That was the first rejection. The second rejection here is here in verse 6, where he was amazed at their lack of faith. Uh, He couldn't do anything except lay his hands on a few sick people. That is the second rejection. The next division in Mark comes at chapter 8 and verse 30, and it is just the opposite. It is Peter's confession of Christ. Peter's confession of Christ. So, We are at another crossroads in the book of Mark in verses 7 to 13. Then Jesus went around the the background, teaching from village to village, calling the twelve to him. He sent them out two by two and gave them authority over evil spirits. So Jesus sent them out. The word sent there is apostolane, and that's a form of apostolos in Greek. And the idea is an official representative. He sent the 12 out. Jesus sent the 12 out. Why? To expand his own ministry. To expand his own ministry. You see, his ministry, his time before the cross was coming to a close. It was coming to a close. And he needed to reach more and more of Israel with the message that if they would put their trust in him, he was the Messiah they expected. If they would put their trust in him, the Davidic kingdom, the millennial kingdom, would be brought in right then and there. And his time was getting short, so he takes the twelve. He makes them his official representatives and sends them out with the same message. This ministry of the twelve is a ministry that could only happen at that time. The instructions that Jesus gives for this ministry of the 12 are not instructions that you and I are to follow today because the unique situation was that there was only a little time before Jesus would go to the cross and the door would be closed to the Jews to accept their Messiah until he comes back the second time. The door would be closed to bring in the kingdom. Individual Jews can come to faith in the church age, but the kingdom won't come until Jesus Christ returns. So that was the idea behind sending these out. They were sent out, the 12 were sent out as his relatives, uh, relatives, as his representatives. Uh, The Jewish concept was that a man's representatives were considered as the man himself. So Jesus sends them out in his place as his representatives, and he authorized them. He authorized them to teach. He authorized them to cast out demons. He gave them the authority and the right and the power to cast out evil spirits. Why did he do that? Because remember, when Jesus uh, would, would bring his message 
to the people of that day in that area, he would be assaulting Satan's kingdom. And so he was giving them the same authority he had over demons, and he sent them out. Well, the instructions to them were, take nothing for the journey except the staff, no bread, no bag, no money in your belts. Wear sandals, but not an extra tunic. Whenever you enter a house, stay there until you leave that town. And if any place will not welcome you or listen to you, shake the dust off your feet when you leave as a testimony against them. They were to travel light. That was the idea. The instructions were unique to this mission. They were to travel light. It indicated urgency. It indicated total dependence upon God. You could summarize what Jesus told them in these two phrases. They were to trust God and not beg. They were to trust God and not beg. I think those are still good phrases for the church today. Trust God, don't beg. Trust God, don't beg. I think those are good attitudes for our own lives. Trust God, don't beg. They weren't to accept an offer of a more attractive place. They were not to be lured by what people could provide for them. They were to uh, pay attention to what they could provide for people. They were to pay attention for what they could provide for people. And I think that's still a good policy for churches today. Churches, instead of being takers, should be givers. Churches, instead of being takers, should be givers. Trust God. And don't beg. Well, they were to shake the dust off their feet. That was, uh, 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 a devout Jew did that whenever he would leave Gentile territory. A devout Jew would do that whenever he would leave Gentile territory. The idea is that they were disassociating themselves from that. They were to disassociate themselves from those who rejected the message by shaking the dust as a Jew in that day would have when they left the Gentile area. Uh, the Jews were acting like pagans. The Jews were acting like pagans. And the idea of Jesus' disciples shaking the dust off their feet, the idea behind that was, that, was to provoke the people to think and to lead them to repentance to provoke the people to think and to lead them to repentance. That's what we read in verses 12 and 13. They went out and preached that people should repent. They drove out many demons and anointed many sick people with oil, and they healed them. And by the way, the anointing with oil, there are two words for anointing in Greek, and we don't have time to get into this. One word is a ritual anointing. The other word refers to... Uh, a medicinal anointing with oil. The word used here is not the word for uh, a, a ceremony. It's the word for using oil as a medicinal. So the disciples were using oil not in a, a symbolic or ceremonial way. They were using oil because that's how people were treated in that day. Many people who were ill were treated by being anointed with oil. That was what was going on here. Well, they went out, verse 12 and 13 says, they went out and preached that people should repent. They drove out many demons and anointed many sick people with oil and healed them. We've said this before. I'll, I'll close with this. 
Repentance is so misunderstood and what repentance means. To repent, one writer said, means to change one's mind and then to fit one's actions to this change. That's the meaning of the word repentance. Repentance means a change of heart, the author said, and a change of action. Repentance is no sentimental feeling sorry. Repentance is a revolutionary thing. That's why so few repent. If we are believers this morning and we know Jesus Christ as Savior, there may be something in our lives that we need to change our minds about. We need to listen to God and go in a new direction. May we do that. If we are an unbeliever this morning and haven't yet trusted Christ as Savior, we are going in the wrong direction. Our lives are going in the wrong direction. We need to repent. What does that mean? We need to change our minds, turn around, and go the other direction. If you don't yet know Christ as Savior, don't let another moment go by before you trust him, before you turn around and go the other way. Let's pray. Lord, thank you. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the ministry of Jesus. Thank you for the ministry of the 12. We pray that we might be about the business of sharing your gospel, sharing your truth with those around us so that more and more will give up their rejection of Jesus, change their minds, and turn around in life. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.